Welcome to The Undercover Elephant, a podcast about scaling and optimizing your PHP applications produced by Tideways. Each week, Benjamin Eberlei and Matthew Setter sit down with an expert from the PHP community to discuss a specific aspect of highly performant PHP applications. Whether you're a lone developer or part of a larger team, if you want to develop fast and reliable PHP applications, then this, my friend, is the podcast for you. All right, all right, all right, and welcome back to episode three of The Undercover Elephant. In this episode, Benjamin and I are going to be talking to Robert Douglas and Larry Garfield from Platform.sh about key considerations when running PHP on multiple servers. You'll find an article about the topic at tideways.com forward slash podcast forward slash three, and you'll also get a link to that in the show notes. And with that, let's begin. Hi, Larry and Robert. Where, where are you calling from today? I'm calling from my spare bedroom on the second floor of my house, which is somewhere in the Chicago area. Let's go with that. And I'm calling from the now dark city of Cologne, where I'm at our brand new WeWork. Yeah, so um, Robert, we met in the train, accidentally met in the train from SymphonyCon Amsterdam back uh, on Saturday. So that was funny. I I know that we always wanted to meet since we are both in Cologne or near Cologne, but uh, now we, we just accidentally met on the train. So that was funny. Hey, man, I'll meet you on the train anytime. <laughs> yes, right. Uh, Larry and Robert, you both work for Platform SH, and um, I know you both from the Drupal community. So I got to know both of you on different symphony conferences and Drupal conferences. And um, yeah, uh, you both work for, for Platform SH, which is a hosting company and um, allows you to run PHP applications and other uh, applications in other languages and um, has sort of a very modern approach to hosting um, applications. Um, yeah, so would you tell us a little bit about um, this? Did I yeah get it correctly sure yeah absolutely so we're not only a hosting company but we also take over the development pipeline for applications including php applications but not just php applications and if if i were to reduce our main uh feature to one sentence it's that for every git branch that you have you have a complete working cluster that is a copy of your application for testing so that's maybe including both code and your production data. So push a button two or three minutes later, you have a complete clone of your entire site, code, data, everything, and you can play with it. And for big sites, we deploy onto an architecture where you run PHP on multiple servers. So uh, we're very familiar with the topic that we have today. Yes. So um, the topic is, and uh, the reason why we have you on for this podcast episode is running PHP applications on multiple servers. So to be honest, I'm like, I am a PHP developer for 20 years now, I think. This year, it's 20 years. So a very long time. And I believe uh, a lot of other PHP developers um, have this same biography where they have been running PHP applications on a single server where the PHP server the web server is uh, on the same server as the database. And if that server is down, the site is down. And, and this is a sort of very normal way of running PHP applications. 
And for small um, companies, small products, small websites, this makes total sense. I have to say that it took, I guess, until 2010, so almost 10 years into my writing PHP career, until I had the scenario for a first time where I ran PHP on multiple application servers. So the question from me to you is, so why, why should I actually run PHP on multiple application servers and not just on one big machine that can handle everything? I say the advantage of PHP over a lot of languages is it's designed from the get-go to support horizontal scalability. So if you have a lot of traffic or you have especially a heavy application, then you can throw more CPU at it to make individual requests run faster. But each request is fully isolated anyway. So if you have two requests that are handling two different, or two processes handling two different requests, and they're both on the same server or they're on two separate servers, the code doesn't care. The code doesn't know the difference. That's in contrast to Node or Go or most other languages that have some kind of persistent daemon to them, where horizontal scalability becomes tricky because they do a lot of things in memory. PHP doesn't, which means throwing more CPUs rather than a bigger CPU at the problem becomes conceptually really easy. Uh, and it's a lot easier these days to buy lots of CPUs than it is to buy one big CPU. And it, it also scales a lot further. So um, one benefit I would imagine from this is if one of the server goes down, then the other servers can still serve traffic. So I have sort of a more available architecture using this approach than if I would run everything on one server. Correct. It also means you can scale up and down more easily. Um, if you find that you know, you just, you're getting a lot of traffic and you need to throw more horsepower at it, it's easier to add more parallel systems than it is to take your one system offline or replace it with a bigger one. If you have multiple parallel systems, it's also possible to then take them out one at a time and replace each one with a bigger system. And we're talking about in a cloud environment here with containers or with virtual machines. If we're talking about physical hardware, then taking it out and replacing it with a bigger system becomes uh, substantially harder and more time-consuming. Please don't do that. Yeah, so the arguments are really convincing for this kind of architecture. Given that so many developers uh, in the PHP space run their applications on, on one server, uh, and from my own experience is, there's sort of a hurdle to running an application of many ser uh, on many servers. So given I have an application now that only runs on one server, what are the problems? What do I need to do with an PHP application to make it run on uh, multiple servers at the same time? The big challenge comes down to state, and this is not PHP specific. When you have, if you have an application that has no data, has no state to it, it just takes a request and responds with a, a common static response, then in any language that becomes really easy to scale horizontally. Once you introduce state, like database, sessions, caches, anything that you can need to remember from one request to the next, that's where it gets tricky. Because the stateless part, the code itself, is really easy to scale horizontally. The state is a lot harder to scale horizontally. So a lot of the, the challenge comes down to separating out the pieces of your application that are stateful, your database, your search index, your uh, caching server, and so on, and the parts that are stateless, your application code itself. It's really ironic that a lot of companies talking about serverless and stateless these days are 
focusing on every language except PHP, because PHP fits this model so well, it does it better than most. But if you can separate out the pieces of your application to stateless PHP code and then data source and connect those over a network, over a container connection, whatever, then it becomes pretty straightforward to scale out the number of stateless pieces you have because it's stateless. It's really easy to scale it out. So mostly it comes down to just so separating your stateful parts and your stateless parts. So there are two stateful parts that I think we're going to talk about in detail, including uh, sessions and file storage. But before even the state, which uh, I totally, of course, agree with Larry's point, and that's a, an important general classification, there's, there's a bigger, or not a bigger, but a, a primary problem that you introduce when you have multiple PHP servers that has to be addressed first. And that is when you have a request, which server handles the request. When there's just one, it's easy. When there's more than one, you have to make a decision. So uh, you don't get to have multiple PHP uh, servers or application containers or runtimes without having a load balancer of some sort. So I think that the first part of the problem space that developers need to look into is actually load balancing. That is having a piece of server or a piece of software, whether it's on a dedicated server or it's a cloud service like Elastic Load Balancer from Amazon, or if it's your Nginx configuration, somehow uh, you need something that routes requests to the various PHP servers. Uh, so maybe we should start with the load balancer. Go front to back. Yeah. So, okay, the way I understand you is... Um... Uh, the client asked uh, a domain for its website and the domain is resolved to an IP address. So uh, one server is handling the traffic for a specific domain and um, this should be a load balancer delegating the traffic to different servers uh, or... Exactly. So the that's exactly right. You end up resolving your domain name to an IP address. That IP address then ends up being a machine or software that is simply taking that request and uh, in its essence, it passes it through to the right PHP runtime, uh, probably on a different virtual machine or a different container running someplace, uh, but that's, that difference isn't really important. Now, a lot of interesting things result from that architecture, okay? The, the first interesting thing is that your load balancer can actually do a lot of other stuff. So the load balancer then usually becomes the place where TLS termination happens. So uh, that's the place where your certificate's going to resolve. Another thing that very commonly happens there is if there's any filtering or uh, protection that can happen at that layer. So it's very possible these days to improve your overall application through some caching or some uh, uh, protection like a web application firewall or DDoS protection. These are all things that can sometimes be built into the uh, load balancing layer, um, especially if you're using a cloud provider that has those built in. And the other thing is that it changes the, the way that your application gets some of its important metadata. So once you have a load balancer in place, you run into some interesting application problems. For example, you can't know the IP address of the uh, request, how it resolved, that's not your server's IP address anymore. So usually in a ser single server setup, if I ask what's my IP address uh, as a PHP application, 
um, I'll get you know a sensible IP address that people could then talk to. But I'll get the wrong one. Either I'll get the machine that I'm on, which is not the IP address of the website, or but that's usually what I want. So for that, you need to have the load balancer send you the IP address that was resolved, and you do that in the X forwarded header. So getting the IP address is uh, not straightforward. In a similar way, you you might not know the protocol that was used to request the site. So uh, remember, you do TLS uh, termination at the load balancer. You might, if you're on a private network, then send the request from the load balancer to the web server unencrypted with HTTP. And then if you ask uh, what protocol you're using, whether it's HTTP or HTTPS, then you would get the wrong answer. So you need to use the X forwarded proto header and the same goes for the port. Uh, you know, you might come in on port 80 on the load balancer, but you might send it to port 81 or 8080 on, on the web server for whatever your reason is. So you need to actually use these headers uh, to get some of the information from the request that you would otherwise just pull directly from the request itself. And these are fairly standard headers. Uh, some of them are standardized by IETF. Others are just everyone uses the same header name, so it might as well be a standard. Except Cloudflare, and Cloudflare will use different headers, but they do the same thing. That's how standards work. Cloudflare being a, a content delivery network CDN. One other thing to mention there, it is possible to do kind of a, a cheap load balancing through DNS if you can have the same... Uh, domain name resolved to multiple IPs, and those IPs are your backend servers. That is the cheap and crappy way of doing it. It does work for a certain definition of work, because then you don't actually have load balancing. You just have a simple kind of random selection. And then DNS caching means that you have very little control over when that changes. Oh, you, total, you totally just triggered me <laughs> on all the other things there are to say about load balancers. And there's a lot to say about yeah, load balancers. So okay. that, First of all, you have to talk about how it load balances, like the strategy. And yours is kind of like... Yeah, well, I'm, I'm not saying this is a good way. I'm saying it's a way that people sometimes do it. It works as a stopgap. But if you're serious about it, you want to have an actual load balancing server that can do a lot of this more robust stuff Rob is talking about. Let's say the load balancer now handles the, the request and delegates it to another server. So we pick one server in random, or what, what is the usual approach that PHP applications work with best? Yeah, I was going to get into that. I don't think PHP applications have much of a preference, but it's worthwhile talking about some of the other functionality that load balancers usually bring. So one of the things that you want your load balancer to do is have health checks. So any good load balancer is not going to just blindly send requests to PHP servers. It's going to actually have an idea of whether or not the PHP server it's sending it to can handle that request, i.e., is it online? Is it overloaded? Does it have enough capacity to actually take the request? So that's why it's balancing the load. It's not just distributing requests randomly, but it's actually paying attention to the servers that it's serving to uh, to make sure they're online, that they're healthy, that they can take requests. So there are different strategies. So you can, uh, depending on what load balancer you're using, you could split traffic 
based on the size of the servers. Maybe you have three big servers and a tiny little small server and just want it to have a little bit of the traffic. That's fine. You can usually configure your load balancer to do that. Or you can just have it like go through all of them one after another. That's called round robin. But the important thing is it should never send a request to a server that is overloaded. Uh, another really important factor to ask yourself when you're thinking about a load balancer is how do I put more servers into the pool? Is it hard to configure or can I automate that in some way? In the ideal case, you're going to be able to bring servers online, whether they're containers or VMs, uh, and the load balancer will basically auto config to take those into its pool and recognize them and send the, them traffic. I think the health check is maybe one of the most important things to consider when you're considering a load balancer. And similarly, that you can take a server offline without losing connections for a while so that you can upgrade it or replace it with another one or make it bigger or whatever you need to do. So that controlling the pool is one of the things that a good load balancer makes easy. Yeah, so in that case, if now the individual servers are handling the requests, you mentioned that we need to um, take care of um, shared state and uh, uh, sessions and files. So um, with a simple PHP application, the default way for sessions would be to store the sessions uh, on disk in a file. And that wouldn't work because users would get randomly sent to different servers and wouldn't find the sessions, I assume. Uh, what, what is a good way to work around that? So first off, that's maybe. You can configure a load balancer so that requests from a given user all end up on the same server on the back end, in which case having a session stored on the local disk is not as bad. I don't recommend that approach because it does make it then harder to swap systems out or add more because when you add more or take systems out, it changes the algorithm for what requests go to what server. So it's possible to do, but not a good idea. That strategy of load balancing is called sticky sessions. Yes. And again, it, it works, but there are better options. Generally speaking, uh, the best place to put your sessions, I would argue, is in Redis. You can also use Memcache for that. You can also use an SQL database. I've seen all of those in production. Generally, Redis is going to give you the best performance, but all of them will do the job. The important thing is that it is some stateful service that is not running on the same server, container, VM, whatever, as your PHP code. That way, that server can stay put, and you can swap out your PHP code or add more PHP instances or requests to go to a different server. And they're all, you know, your requests are fanning out, essentially, from the load balancer to however many PHP instances you have. And then those are talking back again to a single session pool in whatever service it is. That way, if a request comes in, session starts on server two, it's going to record that session in your Redis index. The next request from the same user comes in on server 12, that's going to hit the same Redis index and find the session it's looking for, and the user doesn't know that they're talking to a different server this time because it's the same session. Uh, but it gets complicated, Larry. Oh, what happens does. if Redis goes down? If Redis goes down, you lose all your sessions and people get logged out and all of that Christmas shopping they've been doing, just their cart just disappears. So sad. There are a couple more options, actually. If you're using AWS, uh, there's there usually some cloud-specific option that you could use for AWS that would be like DynamoDB. 
then you get a, a, a scalable, uh, redundant session store, the key value store that uh, you could use. So that would be one thing you could look at. If you could use CouchDB as well, which is a replicated key store. So you could actually have CouchDB running on every machine that's running your PHP. So it would replicate to as many nodes as PHP was running. And as long as you had PHP servers running, you'd have CouchDB servers running and it uses the memcache API. So you could talk to the CouchDB uh, uh, for your session store and you wouldn't have to worry about its scalability or its replication. Or you could use any stateful service that actually saves data. Redis by default doesn't, but Redis can also be configured to persist data. Uh, and then MySQL is the easiest one. Absolutely. Using MySQL, MariaDB, whatever your SQL server is, a lot of CMSs and frameworks have an option, even by default, to toss session data into a table in the database. That will replicate like the rest of your database with primary replica or master-master replication, whatever you're doing. And then your session data is just as available as whatever your SQL data is, and if that goes down, you've got other problems, but that will replicate as well. And there's lots of technology around database replication. So by that uh, standard, memcache isn't necessarily the best session storage since it doesn't have a persistence mechanism. It depends on what you consider the consequences are of having it fail. So memcache has the advantage that it's distributed. And you could use the same strategy that I talked about with CouchDB, where you have memcache running on every PHP server. And as long as you have enough PHP servers to run your application, you're probably going to have enough Redis to store your session. And it's got, you know, a redundant key store. So you could probably go without, you could probably, if you have like five PHP plus memcache servers, you can probably lose one of them and not lose any data. But, um, but you might lose some sessions. You might, it's called memcache for a reason because its primarily uh, use case was conceived of as being a cache and cache by definition is something that you can lose. It's not the canonical data. If you consider your session data to be canonical and important, then you want some sort of persistence for it. Another thing to consider is latency. You can run your, if you have five, six, seven PHP uh, instances, whether they're VMs or containers, you can run your session store in a replicated fashion across those same instances, or they can have their own set of instances. Having them on their own instances means they will go down independently of your PHP containers. That could be good or bad, but it also means that depending on how that's configured, there may be more latency. Once you're dealing with containers, that gets harder to determine because two logical containers may still be on the same physical box and, or the same VM, and therefore the latency between them is basically the same as if we're not in separate containers. But those containers could also be on separate systems, so you introduce network latency. That's the kind of thing you have to look at your infrastructure and determine how are we actually going to configure this, what kind of latency are we willing to accept. There's a lot of variables here you have to think through. I don't know that I have a universal recommendation for that, other than keep these kind of things in mind and avoid accidentally creating new single points of failure. The whole goal here is to eliminate single points of failure. So make sure you don't accidentally create new ones. Yeah, for the, for the listeners who want an easy, straightforward answer, put your sessions in your database. And if that, for some reason, isn't good enough, put them in Redis. 
So here are the points you need to take into consideration when going to multiple PHP servers. You'll need a load balancer to make sure that the requests go to the right PHP server. You'll need to think about how to deploy your code to multiple servers, whether you update them in place or whether you replace them and then switch the load balancing to the new ones. You'll need to figure out how to take care of your sessions because uh, writing sessions to the file system on the local PHP servers won't work. You'll also need to take care of files that are accessed by the PHP servers or stored by them. So we covered the code, but there's also the uploaded files from users or files that they need to access. So you need some sort of network file system or network storage. Beyond that, you also need to think about things like logging and caching and monitoring. Those all have repercussions as well. And did I miss any? Crons and workers, if you have long running processes, you need to know how to start those, how to monitor those, how to kill those, which server they're gonna run on and how they relate to your other PHP runtimes. Now, one good way to approach this problem is remembering that one is a special case of many. So all of those things Rob just talked about, you can still do with a single PHP server. You can move your files off to NFS, you can move your sessions to a database or to Redis or Memcache or whatever. You can move your caching to a proper cache server. You can take all of these steps, even when you have only a single PHP instance, then once you're ready to have a second, third, fourth, fifth PHP instance, you've already done that work to push all of the stateful parts off of PHP to other pieces. And then you can start start adding PHP instances. And if you find when you add a second one that, oh, wait, something's not working, guess what? You missed a piece, but you can now just drop that second one. You've got the rest of the infrastructure in place and go find the part that you forgot and pull that out. So most of this preparation you can very easily do without having to set up multiple PHPs. You can do it all with a single PHP instance uh, just in preparation. Okay, so in case of sessions, we said uh, this would be using, for example, a cache, memcache, Redis, the database. This seems to be problematic with files. Let's say I upload large files, videos, images, something I can't or sh probably shouldn't really store them in MySQL. What is the, the approach that would be taken to handle uh, uploading files in this kind of architecture? It depends a little bit on the type of files you're dealing with and what sort of latency you're going to have. Probably for most people, the easiest approach is to have a network file system of some kind. Uh, those have been slow in the past. They're getting faster. There will be a performance overhead of going through a network file system. But to some extent, you just have to eat that. And then just like you move your data off to a database server that all of your PHP apps talk to, you have a file server that all of your PHP apps talk to. And they can talk over a network protocol. They can use normal Unix network file mounts. There are many ways to skin that cat, but that's pr probably the most common approach and the one that's easiest to set up. If you have files that are infrequently changing and you're okay with a lag when something gets uploaded, you could do replication. So someone uploads a file, that hits server three, gets uploaded, that gets handed off to some process that then copies that file to all of your web servers, and then all of your web servers have a local copy of it. I generally don't Ooh, recommend that's that. Gross. I, I'm trying to be complete. <laughs> that's gross. Don't do it. I'm trying to be complete. 
No, we don't need to be complete about the bad options. That's a bad <laughs> option. We should never do that. That that's like what we did in two thousand one when we were still learning. Yeah, no, no, no. The, the problem that introduces a lot of latency, introduces uh, a lot of lag, and also makes it harder than to spin up new instances because every time you spin up a new instance, you also have to copy over all of that data of uploaded files, which could be a not small amount of data. So. People do it. I don't think you should. You also don't know if you're in a consistent state. Like if I'm replicating files between my servers, how do I prove that all of the servers are in the same state? That's don't do it. I'm, Rob says don't do it. He rings the bell. Boom. Larry agrees. Larry's just explaining the things you shouldn't do. <laughs> <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> what we do at Platform SH is kind of interesting. We use uh, the underlying storage technology on uh, either the PHP server itself, or we spin up some servers just for storage. And then we use a technology called GlusterFS to put those uh, mounts into a network storage that's redundant. So GlusterFS has some interesting properties. It means that it's uh, redundant. So if any one of those has a failure or needs to get taken out of the cluster, then it... Uh, you have all your files, and that, that's a guarantee. It has also the guarantee or the interesting property that it can be both bigger and or smaller than any individual mount. So you can actually put together a Gluster FS brick out of many different mounts that have smaller sizes than the overall size. So you can aggregate lots of disks together to get the size that you want up to some limitation that Gluster has. Now, that's kind of complex, and we manage that, and it works really nicely for some of our plans. Those are specifically on our dedicated plans. But there are also usually some sort of options available from the underlying cloud provider. So since I've talked about Amazon, it's worth mentioning EBS, which is Elastic Block Store, and EFS, which is Elastic File Store. It depends a lot on what you're trying to store. If you're only storing images, then you can actually use a service like EFS, Elastic File Service, which has a lot of really nice properties in terms of it being available across uh, many availability zones. Um, you can uh, scale it uh, elastically. It's in the name. <laughs> Unlike EBS, which also has elastic in its name, but isn't nearly as elastic, it's harder to scale. But you can't store some sort of data. So if you actually need like block file storage level data, like your database would need, then you can't run the database there. So the, the file storage is really important to know what you're storing there before you uh, choose your solution. If you're just storing files, you could use S3, which is blob storage uh, provided by Amazon. And there's an API that turns your mount into a, it uses the API for S3 so that you can read and write files more or less directly from S3. So you need to know the use case, uh, but all of the things that need persistence in a multi-server situation will need some sort of file system solution. And that's either a block level storage or a file level storage or a blob storage, depending on what's needed. And you, you need to pick the right technology for each one. Unfortunately, there's not a magic silver bullet. One thing Rob touched on, I think is important to mention. If you have a site big enough that you are replicating your PHP across multiple instances, it's probably important enough that your data also be replicated. So you want to be using 
some kind of replication for your database. You want to use some kind of replication on your file store so that when something breaks, because something will always break, you don't lose all files on your entire site, your entire database. You have some recovery mechanism beyond just, oh, go look for a backup. So whatever your mechanism is, whether it's ClusterFS or trusting Amazon S3 or whatever, you want to have some kind of replication for your stateful services as well wherever possible. Uh, I love that uh, response for the file system part because uh, you you started with networking file systems, which is us acting as file systems to the PHP application. So you probably no, don't even need to change code. Uh, it's just using the file system functions and then going to more available, more or more elastic solutions that uh, maybe require some changes uh, by using S3 APIs or any any kind of API that you would need for for a different kind of storage. So uh, as you said, every solution needs to be looked at or every file access needs maybe a different solution, every type of file you store, and um, there are different options available. Uh, as a last point, you mentioned that uh, we have uh, cron jobs that we need to look at, or, or not at the last point, but um, one important point is that we need to look at cron jobs. So how do we um, solve the problem that um, cron jobs need to be handled uh, with multiple application servers? Yeah, that's more important then. Yeah, it really depends what you want cron to do, is the, the bigger question. If you have five copies of your PHP application on five different servers, and you say, oh, we should have a cron job that runs every 10 minutes. What you don't want to happen is that all five servers start a cron job every 10 minutes, because then you'll just have lots of contention and waste. So the typical strategy is to have one server run your cron jobs and as a trade-off uh, for its extra effort, maybe not take as many of the HTTP requests. Or you could have a dedicated server to do that depending on how big your application is or many dedicated servers if that's what's needed. But the important idea here is that you now need to start thinking of your cron jobs as singletons or not. Maybe it's a cron job that runs specifically on each web server. I don't know the application logic needed, but you need to think about that. You need to know whether your cron jobs are a singleton. And if they're meant to be a singleton and not run on all five servers, then you need a way to elect one of the servers to run cron jobs. And it was worse than that because that server can die. And if it does, you need to uh, elect a different server to do that. So another thing that a load balancer is very often capable of doing is sending something that says, hey, you're it, tag, you're the, you're the master or you're the elected one. So, uh, or your application could do that too. But somehow you need to know which server is going to run cron jobs and it It should only be one. What is the the most simple solution that uh, can can be picked for that? Because it sounds like a difficult problem to decide which which server is is it. Pick one at random. Well, who picks one at random though? I mean, the, that's an oversimplification of the problem. Because if all five sure. of them pick one at random, then they'll come up with five servers. <laughs> the problem is that we're talking about state here, right? There's got to be a state that says which server is the cron running server. So fortunately, uh, you'll probably have to deal with this problem anyway, because a lot of the other uh, clustering technologies that you might want to use might also require master election. And either you could make it really simple and have, you know, maybe the load balancer can do it, or maybe you can piggyback on 
something else, but you, you, need to, you need to basically store that state in the database or in your session database or on the file server that's network file server and shared by them. Um, there, there needs to be some state that says which one of the available servers is the, the one that runs cron. And there has to be a health check on that server so that if that changes uh, and, the health, and that server goes away, then the state has to update. So yeah. The rest is left as an exercise to the to the reader or to the listener. This question of you know leader selection essentially is its own branch of computer science and software engineering with a lot of PhDs written in it. You don't want to be reading those PhD theses, trust me. So look for tools that will take care of this for you. Whether that is a load balancer that has that built in, whether that is your auto scaling tools, whatever those happen to be that have that built in, you look for some other tool that already solves this problem because it is a hard problem, TM, and you don't want to be dealing with that one yourself. Find a tool that will do it for you. Yeah, so uh, one thing that we did for a long time, it doesn't help with the single point of failure, but um, one approach getting started, I felt was working is just have a human decide who the uh, elected server is and uh, pick one. Uh, let the crons run on that. And uh, by the nature of big numbers, since you have a few servers, the likelihood that exactly the cron server is going down is less. It's not zero, but uh, it's again a risk uh, that you can take or not. And then, then it comes a question of what is cron doing and what goes wrong if cron doesn't run for a while because that one server goes down at 11 o'clock at night and no one notices until 8 a.m. If your cron is just doing background cleanups, then maybe that's okay. You know, if you're sending the receipts that's you know, receipt emails that say, "Hey, you just bought something, expect it to come at this time," uh, you really don't want to wait eight hours for that to go out. Or processing orders in any way, if 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 it's a if yeah. it's, if the crons or the workers are usually what would take the orders from a queue and process them. So if your cron goes down and you have to wait for a human to to fix it, then your e-commerce site is basically screwed. Yeah, so don't do that. A lot of it comes down to, you know, just what is the failure mode? What's the impact of failure? I would also say, we've been talking about crons here, consider crons and workers separately. Crons are things that are not running continually. They're run at regular intervals. You want to use a worker of some kind for background processing that you can push off is not necessary to run the to respond to web requests, but is still critical to the functioning of the system. And for that, you have a persistent process or two or six or 12 on their own containers, their own servers that are handling whatever those happen to be. Depending on your application, that could be as simple as every email that gets sent goes through uh, a worker. So you just say, add a, uh, a record to your RabbitMQ server, which is one of your stateful services, that says, hey, send an email to Robert saying, thanks, got your order. And that will get picked up by a worker service that's running on another container, another server that is itself also stateless. And it will just chew through that queue and send emails. And that's all it does. And you may have another worker that's handling sending messages off to a third-party ordering system or whatever. Those, your cron, you can get away with running on the same instance as your application. If your application is such that you have a persistent worker, you really want to run that on a separate instance. Uh, otherwise, you're going to have way too much resource contention 
because workers by nature want to be churning all the time. And if they're churning all the time, they're competing with the same CPU and memory as responding to a user request, and you don't want that. So when you're talking about a persistent worker, you basically have a second layer of these persistent, uh, excuse me, of these um, stateless PHP applications. Everything we said before applies to them too, except they don't respond to HTTP requests. They talk internally amongst themselves. But then you can scale those independently of your web front end as well. And that's a good thing. Okay, so uh, essentially handling all the background processing as if it also was an application scaled across multiple servers and uh, talking to, I assume, a queuing system or something. Queuing system, database, whatever your coordination mechanism is. Usually it's a queue server of some kind, like RabbitMQ, ZeroMQ, Beanstalk. You can also do a waiting queue where you have stuff stored in your SQL database and you have a process that every five seconds just checks the database to see if there's something new and if so, it does it. That's less good, but it can get the job done if you have a relatively low volume and you don't need immediate responses. I have set up systems like that. It, again, it gets the job done. It's not ideal, but it can work. The important thing is that when you have work split off to a background process, that is not happening on the same server as the web process. You don't want those competing for resources. Now, what you can do is what we do at Platform. In our uh, grid product, you deploy a single code base, and you can tell that to spin up as a web container and as a worker container. It's the exact same code base, but then they start different commands. One starts PHP FPM and responds to web requests. The other runs some shell command that starts a PHP shell process that is in the same code base. So it has access to all the same code, but it's instead sitting there churning and waiting on your RabbitMQ instance or whatever. That way, if you if they have shared code between them, say your, your data model or your uh, entities are defined in code, then you're uploading both of those at the same time because you can push the same code base to both of them, but they still deploy as separate running instances. Okay, so you sort of have this single view on your single application, and it's just a um, kind of deployment thing that it's scaled out to different workers, web servers, and so on. But the application view is still that you have this one code base uh, that you're working with. And I, I like this model because it gives you some of the benefits of microservices in that you can scale out, you can split up the uh, the workload between different instances, but without most of the managerial overhead of microservices where you need to have separate code bases that coordinate and have a clean API between them and separate teams. And it, it simplifies a lot of that by just saying, I've got one application, I'm going to run it in a couple of different modes on different containers, but it's all the same code base. And that makes a lot of problems go away. Yeah, I also love this approach. I'm a, a lover of monolithic code bases in this, <laughs> this sense. <laughs> Multimodal monolithic code bases uh, are actually a really nice model. PHP does it very well. It also works if you have, say, a dedicated admin area and you want your admin running a, a different code path, you can have that on a separate container as well. So you have sub -web, some web containers that are responding to user requests and a different set responding to admin requests, all from the same code base, just different startup commands. That's also entirely possible. And this that way you can still maintain only a single code base and spin it up in a lot of different ways. I, I, I generally recommend that model over microservices, quite frankly. 
Yeah, um, so should we wrap up at that point? I know there's still the, the logging uh, topic, but we have planned to talk about it in another podcast. And I believe if we now get into it, it might really get a little bit too long, if that's fine with you. I just want to say thank you very much for coming on and being an, an interesting duo, uh, bouncing off each other. It's been, um, it's been a lot of fun to sort of sit back and, and listen and take it all in. So at this point, uh, if there's anything that you would like to, to give a plug for, please feel free. So if any of that sounded overwhelming or complicated, then I just wanted to let everybody know that when you run your applications on Platform SH, you basically get all of those problems solved for you. You get highly available and uh, scalable applications uh, basically by adding three YAML files to your code base and making a couple decisions about how to configure things. And for a lot of uh, PHP applications like Symfony applications, Drupal, Magento, WordPress, then we already have example templates to show you how. And the great thing about it is, in addition to getting all of that scalability and robustness, you can also easily install Tideways and do APM monitoring and profiling as well. Sounds awesome. Yeah. So uh, thank you really, really uh, um, for, for talking to, to us about this topic. It was really interesting and uh, uh, covered all kinds of problems with uh, both simple solutions to start with and also bigger solutions to uh, work towards. Have a nice day, everyone. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks. A lot of fun. And thanks for tuning in. The Undercover Elephant is produced by Tideways, a PHP monitoring, profiling, and exception tracking software company. If you want to know more about anything that you heard during the episode, about a wonderful guest, or about Benjamin and myself, check out the show notes in your favorite podcast player. Alternatively, go to undercover-elephant.com. That's undercover-elephant.com. You'll find a link to each episode, which contains show notes for that episode. If you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, or if you know someone who is very knowledgeable in writing highly performant and scalable PHP applications, then email us at podcast at tideways.com. That's podcast at tideways.com. <laughs>